Welcome into Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Errant. Glad to have you with us on this Thursday. Coming up this hour, the danger of misinformation, especially as we head into a very contentious election year. University of Delaware professor Danigal Young will join us to talk about what drives so many people to fall into the trap of fake news online Mm. and how our own psychology is often exploited by politicians and people in power. Very interesting discussion coming, and we are welcoming your comments. Where do you come across misinformation the most? Are you finding it harder to separate truth from fiction? Has anything helped you navigate these online traps? Call us. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. In just a few moments, we're going to talk about a fascinating story that gets into how we dye our clothes. Spoiler alert, it's going to get toxic. Ooh, I like that one. (laughs) First, it's going to get political, Cherry. Let's do some stories today. Yeah, well, President Joe Biden, Avi, is expected to hold his first campaign speech of 2024 on Friday. Mm -hmm. He chose a place near Valley Forge and is expected to touch on the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. The president is expected to warn voters that his leading GOP opponent, you know him, former (laughs) President Donald Trump, presents an existential threat to American democracy. Now, originally he was going to speak on Saturday, but the event got moved because we thought we were going to have this snowstorm, but looks like it's going to be rain. There you go. But at this point, we don't know the exact location of the speech. Um, it has not yet been disclosed, but sources hint that it could be at Montgomery County Community College located in Bluebell. Um, and of course, you know, the campaign chose this location uh, because of some history there where 250 years ago, George Washington united a disorganized alliance of militias to fight for democracy. Now, all of this is kicking off the campaign season. In two weeks, you have the Iowa caucuses. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you go back to 2020, which we all remember, a lot of people chose or voted for um, President Biden because they did not want, you know, former President Donald Trump to have a second term. So he's hoping to sort of, you know, motivate voters again using that same type of logic. Because he's had problems reuniting that coalition yes. during his presidency, at mm-hmm. least if you look at the polls. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's in some ways this is not surprising at all, right? No, Pennsylvania is no, no, a swing not. state. We mm-hmm. know that. But also Philadelphia and the region has always been a rich backdrop for politicians to play off of when mm-hmm. they make these types of speeches. And in fact, Biden was here, I think, in 2022 for a mm-hmm. big speech about uh, democracy and the threat to democracy at Independence Hall. You'll recall Obama came to Philadelphia on the campaign trail in 2008 and gave a landmark speech Mm -hmm. about race and, again, using the idea of the nation's independence and founding as part of that speech. And you know I love history, Cherry. Let me take it all the way back. Break it down. 1861. Mm -hmm. On his way to Washington to be inaugurated, Abraham Lincoln stopped at Independence Hall and made a sort of a short kind of impromptu speech. But the last words of it are chilling when you think about what happened Mm -hmm. during his presidency. Lincoln said at Independence Hall, 1861, I have said nothing but what I am willing to live by. And if it be the pleasure of almighty God, die by. Wow. And here in Philadelphia. There you go. So great legacy of political speeches here Mm -hmm. in Philly. Um, And we'll see what Biden delivers coming up. Yeah. And and by the way, I should mention that on Monday, he's going to go to another swing state, South Carolina. Yep. 
uh, to speak. Well, not a, what well, call it, a swing state. Swing, it's kind of like a swing. It's a very important state for Biden. For Biden specifically. For Biden yes. Spe- yes. specifically. He's going to be in Charleston speaking at the church where nine people were killed in an anti-black mass shooting back in 2015. These are like back-to-back you know, events mm-hmm. to sort of rally the troops for Biden and, and get people excited about the 2024 election. So yeah. we shall see. Absolutely. Um, some news uh, about traffic safety in our city. Legislation signed into law last month authorizes adding five new corridors and five new school zones to Philly's speed camera program. Plan Philly's Aaron Moselle has a story up about this right now. You can check it out, WHYY.org. Um, you'll recall that they started to pilot these speed mm-hmm. cameras on Roosevelt Boulevard in northeast Philadelphia, yeah. and they have been credited with helping to reduce speeding on that very dangerous mm-hmm. and wide roadway. And now uh, through some state-enabling legislation, which you have to do in, for these speed cameras, um, they're going to expand that program. It looks like maybe Henry Avenue, North mm-hmm. Broad Street, Cobbs Creek Parkway, Kelly Drive. We're not quite sure yet, mm-hmm. but but it does seem like this idea is building some steam. Yeah, it is. And and why? Why expand the these traffic cameras? Well, city data shows that at least 40 people died in hit and runs in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, that is more than double the total that was recorded in 2019. So this is a real issue here. There is some concerns, though, that these speed cameras are going to penalize drivers. It's and re- some people think it's regressive. They, they, they kind do. Kind of like the way the soda taxes. They yeah. do. But um, from June 2020 to November 2022, violations actually dropped 90 percent because it seems like you get one of those tickets, you learn really quickly and you slow down. Right. (laughs) And so that's the the hope is that, you know, by expanding these zones, the greatest teacher in the world, that tap. That's like, oh, you you feel that little (laughs) tap right there to hit your pockets. They call it a nudge, I believe, in behavioral (laughs) psychology. It's a nudge. You know, you start tapping those brakes. You're like, oh, (laughs) what's the speed look like? I'm not going to be nudging those brakes. Exactly. But people will get an opportunity to weigh in on the location. So this won't just happen. And city council has to, you know, um, you know, vote and everything in order to get each of the locations, the cameras installed. So there's going to be some, 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 you know, mechanisms put in place to, to make sure that the public does have a say. From an engineering perspective, mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about what type of stuff works best. Because the problem is that people drive too fast, and when they, they drive do? too fast, they kill people. So the question is, is, is it speed cameras and traps? Does, does that motivate people the most? Um, maybe that's in combination with those signs that just tell you how fast you're going, so you mm-hmm. get immediate feedback um, mm-hmm. instead of feedback a couple of weeks later about, you know, to make maybe give you a little shame. Mm-hmm. Maybe just the roads need to be narrowed, right? Maybe Roosevelt Boulevard just can't be as wide as it is. Yeah. And, and maybe it's all of these. But and then people just, have to walk across. I mean, it's just right. it's so many elements. But something needs to be done. Too many Absolutely. Lives need to be saved. Absolutely. Um, question, Avi. Sure. Um, Hit me. Have you, I don't know if you put up holiday decor, but. I do. Did, did you, have you taken it down yet? Part of it, because um, we got a garland this year that was made of actual pine. It uh, wasn't synthetic. That thing gonna... shed like crazy. Oh. Had to take it down the mm-hmm. next day. 26th, it was down. Yeah, because it was everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, my, my deadline for taking down my uh, holiday decor, MLK Day. So there That's you go. That's your self-imposed Mine is deadline. still up there. But okay. if you're somebody that keeps a Christmas tree up mm-hmm. way past the end of the season, there are some great ways to undecorate sustainably in our region. You can recycle. Mm-hmm. Your gift wrap, paper gift bags and tags, Christmas cards and more. Um, but, you know, you got to remember if it's if your wrapping paper is glittery or metallic, the city will not recycle them. 
You can save them or reuse them for we next year. We don't want year. the recycling to be too shiny. Yeah, That's it can't be point. too shiny. Also, um, there's an organic mo- uh, market in Center City called Moms that will take your string lights, whether they work or not. That's you so can cool. get those in. And uh, a fun one, Christmas trees. You can do the straightforward, sustainable thing and drop them off for free at one of the city's many recycling centers. Or you can feed them to the goats. The Philly Goat the Project will turn your tree into snacks for goats. Goats eat trees. Apparently okay. so. I mean, they're the GOAT project. They're, they're going to give them snacks. All right. So there you go. But you should check out the story. <laughs> Asha Prihar wrote a great roundup of all the things you can do. You can check out that story of Billy. I'm wondering <laughs> if goats eat all types of trees or just Christmas trees. What is their stomach lining made of? Yeah. I'm like, dude. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's a splinter like waiting <laughs> to happen. But okay. anyway. Um, maybe you get some splinters if you have hardwood floors. <laughs> Is that a transition? I don't know. We're going to talk about some real estate You news. were so good at that. <laughs> you mm, that wasn't a, that good. You that pulled that, that out of the somewhere. That wasn't that yeah, good. Go ahead. Um, so if you have some extra millions in the bank, maybe mm. you win the Powerball, you can now buy the former home, the former penthouse of 76ers MVP Joel Embiid mm. in Center City. It's a really more old city over on Walnut Street near Front. Um, it's just went on the market. The price, Cherry? A lot. <laughs> It's a lot. Uh, in this case, a lot is five point five million dollars. Now that's the ask. That's the asking price. You can bargain down from that. Okay. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's a thousand square foot rooftop penthouse. Uh, did you check out the photos? I did. It has a pool, a hot tub, an outdoor kitchen on the a on the really deck. cool looking pool. I, I have to have say. a party at Joel and B's house. <laughs> Formerly, he doesn't <laughs> yeah, live there for, anymore. That's true. Um, that's true. And uh, it was a very cool residence. And uh, we were going to pair this with a story that we saw in the Inquirer. Zillow came out with a list mm. of the top priorities for people looking for real estate in Philadelphia in 2023 based on the keywords that they type into Zillow. Um, and this is Philly specific. Mm-hmm. Number three on the list, Central AC. Need that Central AC Got for it. these yeah. climate warmed summers. You, you absolutely know? do. Number two, mm-hmm. basement. Oh. People are always looking for basement. And number one, street parking. <laughs> Yeah. People, no, it's serious out here. When people look for a home, I think the first thing they think about actually is their car. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the national data, this is not Philly specific, mm-hmm. the number one thing on the list is garage. Garage. Yeah, That's garage. Right. Um, if, if you're British, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so a bad accent there. <laughs> so, anyways, I just thought that's interesting, right? That it sort is. of cars are so primary in people's minds when mm-hmm. they shop for a home. Yeah, very cool. I like that. And um, five point five million, you could hit the. By the way, Powerball, like you yeah. could hit it. You know, thirty-five million dollar jackpot. You might be able to buy Joel and Beads. Oh, that's plenty. You got. Oh, yeah. you got millions to spare. There you go. That. There you go. So, uh, from real estate to a fascinating new exhibit at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia, which traces the rise of synthetic dyes in the textile industry. Before the nineteenth century, most clothing dyes. They were natural, but the mid-1900s chemical dye was discovered and more vibrant greens, reds, and pinks became possible. But sometimes there was a deadly effect. Hmm. And Philadelphia was at the center of it all, giving birth to an entire chemical industry. WHYY News arts and culture reporter Peter Crimmins looked into textile dyes, including toxic ones used in our region and their cultural and environmental impact. Peter, welcome back to Studio Two. It's good to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. WHYY Newses. I know. Arts and Culture say, oh, Reporter we, we Peter Grimmins. There he is. Um, mm-hmm. Peter, so tell us about this big moment in the middle of the 19th century. Um, 
because and, and first tell us what was going on before. How were clothes getting their natural color? dyes? Natural dyes natural were dyes. Um, okay. you you have very limited palette. You could get indigo, which is blue. You can mm. get matter, which is red, or you can also get red from a Brazil wood. You can use saffron to get yellow, mm-hmm. um, and. That's it. That's pretty much, you know, and and you can do simple variations of those. Um, And the dyeing process was extremely laborious Mm. (laughs) because you had to oxidize it. You had to dip it and oxidize. You had to ferment the dye for months. Um, So it was it was possible to get good colors. But it was um, if your color got stale. Like if you, you if your favorite suit or your favorite mm-hmm. dress um, fell out of, was that a, was last year's color and you want to be this year's color you can you can't die you, a person of normal means if you're a wealth you can do anything you want but, <laughs> but a person of normal means couldn't change the color of their clothes interesting um, and clothes and then red. what happened uh, by accident an 18 year old chemist named William Perkin 18 mm. years old 18 years old he was tinkering around trying to um, he was working with coal tar, which is a black sludge that comes out of the uh, – it's a byproduct of coal processing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was trying to get um, – what was he trying – he was trying to extract something from it. And he realized that all his test tubes turned mauve, the color that, – that kind of purplish mm-hmm. color. It's a nice color, mauve. Which, which uh, did, does not exist naturally. You can't dye anything naturally that mm-hmm. color. It, it, the color doesn't actually – it exists very rarely in the natural world, generally. I think you can find mm-hmm. some flowers that are mauvish. But, um, and he decided to give up on, uh, on what he was trying to, to, to extract and, and just go all in on dyes. And so mauve became this sort of um, hit color. Suddenly, you could have a mauve dress, and no one could have had that before. Mm. And it's, it launched a whole industry. And you talked about the laborious nature of natural dyes, but synthetic dyes weren't as laborious. So no. talk about what, how, how the creation of synthetic dyes sort of transformed fashion in that it, way. It's quick, it's cheap, and you can, you can make it, you can dial into any color, any shade of any color you want. I mean, it, with, with natural dyes, you're, if you're really good, you, you can get certain shades. But uh, with synthetic dyes, you can literally dial in what precise shade you want. You can do it repetitively. You can do it reliably. Color explosion. Here. Color explosion. And and every People year, walking around <laughs> with colorful, colorful outfits <laughs> on, gloves, all kinds of I stuff. I mean, you see, I mean, they didn't get real nutty until, you know, late in the 20th century when you get like Barbie pinks. And the 60s uh, fashion uh, really exploded with really crazy colors, day glow colors, colors that don't exist naturally anywhere in the world. It's far out, yeah. Um, you can really get psychedelic with it. And you see some of that uh, in this ex- exhibit. You have this Barbie pink uh, women's suit and, and these sort of day glow underwear and stuff. It's yeah, You and, couldn't do that before. And quick follow-up to that because, you know, I'm thinking about the, the guy, the 18-year-old who invented. He's, yeah, right. He's getting sludge from coal. So I'm assuming <laughs> that that can't be good for human beings no, no, to have and, this and kind of stuff. So synthetic- there were some... Some negatives to yeah, the, the, synthetic this, dyes. It, the, the discovery of synthetic dyes really launched the, the modern chemical industry. Um, uh, because, and it, really a petrochemical industry because all the dyes that they were, were extracting were, were, came from petrochemicals, came from the byproducts of coal, byproducts of oil. Um, and so, like Bayer, Bayer Aspirin started out as a dye company. Novartis, who mm. contributed to uh, the COVID vaccine re- most recently, started out as a dye, dye company. company. Wow. wow. DuPont uh, didn't start as a dye company. They started fire and um, gunpowder. Yeah, gun but uh, but they developed most major chemical companies at some point in their late 19th century 
got into the dye business. And, and a lot of stuff was right here in Philly, right? Philly it was, was huge. Philly Workplace? was like was like a like a, a mecca for this mm-hmm. type of act, uh, it industrial It was. It was actually right? the the largest, the city with the largest textile industry in the world. Wow. And and about, at one point, about sixty thousand people worked in the in the greater textile industry. And we're talking about not just clothes, but but upholstery and anything fabric related, hats, um, the weaving of fabrics, the manufacturing of fabrics, the dyeing of fabrics. It was an enormous industry. Um, we used to have it. Was, they, they got civic with it. There used to be a wool week, a, so <laughs> a civic parade with floats, <laughs> where all these back. industries. I, like week, yeah. I, I couldn't figure out if anyone was ever crowned the queen, wool queen. <laughs> but I'm kind of hoping that there was a someone a wool queen. <laughs> so what sort of? Because um, I know the Philly, the workshop of the world, and leader in manufacturing sure. and textiles. But what sort of like killed that dye industry here in Philadelphia? It became global. I mean, you can yeah. do it cheaper and and bigger, and it just got more diversified. It, 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 back in the day, when we were the workshop of the world, it was a concentration of lots of industries right in Philadelphia. Right. In fact, uh, what, what's now Thomas Jefferson University, the Philadelphia University campus up in East Falls, was originally founded as a university to teach people the textile Textiles, yep. Um, and it, it just dissipated. There are some companies that are still around. Uh, Caledonian, which is up in... Uh, Sort of uh, Frankfurt, Torresdale area. Yeah. Um, uh, Frank, uh, Kensington, actually. Um, they're still, they, they have gener- multi generational family business. They're still around. Um, but, but for the most part, for the most part, yeah. it's gone. Well, the exhibit, uh, we'll say one more time for mm-hmm. folks, is called Bold color from test tube to textile at the Science History Institute. And a great story about it up right now at whyy.org via Peter Crimmins. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Coming up, why do people believe misinformation online? University of Delaware professor Danigal Young is here to talk about her new book, Wrong. Email us, studio2 at whyy.org. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? You are listening to Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron, And I'm Cherry Gregg. We all know that misinformation is rampant on the Internet. The wars in Israel and Ukraine, vaccines and COVID, climate change, every topic seems ripe for manipulation. And you can bet that with the 2024 presidential election this year, all the false news and information is going to get a whole lot worse. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. University of Delaware communications and political science professor Dana Young has a theory about why we believe all this false information. We want to believe the lies because they reinforce our Mm -hmm. identity, our connection to our group, and it gives us a sense of control over the world. It's all tied into our psychology, a psychology that politicians and the news media, we have to say, Mm -hmm. exploit for their gain. They want to magnify our differences, play up identity politics, and make us mad at one another. Dana Young is with us in studio to talk about all of this and her new book, Wrong. How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. Dana, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And you listeners, you can call us. You can email us with your question or comment about the proliferation of false news and information. How do you recognize it? How do you think we should combat it? How do you talk to a friend or family member 
who believes a lie. Call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Oh, Dana, there's so much to get to here. So, okay. so much. So it seems like there's kind of two parts to this conversation, and you really break it down in the book. The second part is like what's happening today. But the first part is what's happening in our brains that's been happening as long as we've had human brains that makes us want to sort of glom onto an identity and see the world through that identity lens. So let's talk first about that. Um, David here has an email saying, saying, humans are social apes who by their nature look to those of high status for what to think and do. Um, and I'll use that as a springboard. Let's talk about humans as animals here. Yeah, David's right. We are social animals, and that's not just a throwaway line. That is literally because we cannot survive alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about what it means to understand the world around us, what it means to make sense of the world, how do we do that? On the one hand, we have information in our minds, and we can come to conclusions internally, right, through logic. And usually that's rooted in our values and beliefs, right? We also look out to the world around us and make observations of the world. And those observations of the world will maybe update the things that we know to be true. Mm -hmm. The issue is when we make observations of the world, we're not doing so objectively because the things we already believe – are going to shape literally what we see. That's hmm. the, the concept of a confirmation bias, right? That we we see the world in keeping with our pre-existing beliefs. What's underlying all of this, though, and what's fascinating to me is that there is increasing evidence that the values and theories and beliefs that we hold are very much tied to our our sense that we are a member of a team. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and we know that we have all different social identities. So I'm I'm on a bunch of different teams. They're malleable, right? Mm-hmm. But increasingly in the U.S. context, there are these political mega identities that are dominating not just politics but also culture. Right? Like there's this sense that Republicans and Democrats do- drive different cars, listen to different yep. music, have mm-hmm. different avocations, and occupy different social spaces. And so those social identities dominate so much, and then they shape not only what we believe, but literally what we see. Can you give an example of that? Sure. There's a, an amazing set of studies that, that um, came out of NYU where they looked at whether or not you could manipulate what social identity was salient in people's minds. And so, for example, they took people who were from the South, Mm -hmm. and they had them, they did different manipulations. One condition, they were asked to write about what it meant to them to be Southern. And another condition, they were asked to write about something not related to their Southern identity. And then they had them eat or describe eating Southern foods, collard greens, grits, etc., in the condition where the Southern identity was made salient, the the description of those foods was so much more positive wow. because they were perceiving that what we call an attitude object, the food, through the lens of social identity. Uh, the example that I give in the book is related to, to me. And, you know, I, I'm not from the South, so I can't mm-hmm. talk about grits or collard greens. I don't even really know what they are, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? But, um, Deliciousness. <laughs> but I, I am from New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and I'm from a rural area in New Hampshire. And there were uh, wind turbines that were constructed on the top of the mountains up there. And a lot of the local folks from the area really do not like the wind turbines because they changed the, the landscape. They, it used to be really pristine, and now there are these big sort of industrial windmills, basically, Mm -hmm. that are up there. However, 
not only do I have an identity as someone from New Hampshire, I have an identity as someone who's an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm not up there, I think of wind turbines as really good. And I literally see them as like progress and clean air and blue skies. But sometimes when I'm up in New Hampshire visiting my family and I've been around the folks from the community, I see those turbines as like eyesores, like industrial or a threat, right? Because they're going to harm tourism, perhaps, and they don't look nice. It really is wild. And I think if we really challenge ourselves, we can identify some of those instances where we have the same thing. Interesting. And so that sort of links to the next part of our conversation, because um, perfectly well-educated people, uh, reasonable people um, could be led to believe something that is clearly or or most people would say would be false how do we become success susceptible to this and tie that to this idea of us wanting to be on these teams because i I just want how do we go from you know we understand facts to be true things to be true to believing falsities well what's underlying a lot of our needs when we understand the world um so i talk about the three c's we we feel Mm -hmm. the need to comprehend the world have control over it and have community within it but all of those needs are shaped by our social identity we want to comprehend the world in keeping with other members of our team. We don't want to understand the world differently from our team, right? We want to control the world in ways that benefit my team. And we want to enact community in the same way that my team does. So the the, the notion, you know, when that first comment from the email mm-hmm. from David, the, the idea that we're social animals, think about how crucial it is or would have been thousands of years ago yep. to be a member of a team and to be a good member of a team. What would have been more mm. beneficial for you in that environment? Would, have, would it have been more beneficial for you to perhaps believe in something that was accurate, but that went against everyone in your tribe? Now, now mm-hmm. you're out in the wilderness by yourself. Now you're by mm-hmm. yourself yeah. and you've, you've made everybody mad. Mm-hmm. They don't want to protect you because you have gone against what they believe. Even if you're accurate in that perception, is that necessarily going to be more beneficial than Mm-hmm. Being a good member of the team, believing what they believe, so that then they, who become your protective coalition, can help to protect you against threats in the world. Yeah, you quote a social scientist in the book, Jonathan Haidt, who says the most groupish groups had an advantage over groups of selfish individuals. And so this is evolutionary on some level. I want to read an email here from Leah who says, uh, I realized when it comes down to it, it's not about politics and intelligence. What hooks people to fake news is fear, a fear that is so powerful that they refuse to fully understand it. If they don't ever examine what's behind their fear, it will turn into distrust and paranoia, and they will be drawn to stories that validate these feelings. Mm -hmm. The stories themselves don't have to make any sense. What role does fear play in shaping our teams? Fear is such an interesting emotion because I would actually say, I would be more specific and say it's the perception of threat. Yes. So fear and anger are both negative emotions, but they're Mm -hmm. actually quite different. And as much as we think of these things as fear-oriented, I actually think that they're more anger-oriented because fear is an emotion that causes you to want to avoid things. Mm -hmm. Fear, when you think of fight or flight, fear causes us to want to flee, right? It is anger that is an approach emotion. So I think that the, the writer is correct, though, in the sense that perception of threat Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. is what is igniting a lot of these patterns. And a lot of times those perceptions of threat are about threats of outgroups, threats of other potentially hostile groups who are here to um, take our way of life, uh, threaten our social station, our sort of cultural or financial or social station. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that that distinction is important between anger and fear is that a lot of these beliefs that are uh, false beliefs about the threats posed by outgroups, for example, think think for example of the Great Replacement yeah, Theory, yeah. which mm-hmm. is you know Came the to mind, yeah. yeah right mm-hmm. the conspiracy theory that says that the idea of bringing people to the United States from other places um, is a plot of the left to dilute the um, electoral power of the right. Right, that is a racist conspiracy theory, but it's also one that in, in ignites anger. Mm. Anger mm-hmm. is usually underneath conspiracy theories, not necessarily fear. It's anger because there are there are you know allegations of powerful people in the shadows operating to benefit themselves and harm others, and they're doing it in a way that is secret and that we'll never really know about. Mm-hmm. And that makes conspiracy theories awfully sticky because you can never bring some information to bear that would say, Oh, now this conspiracy theory is revealed to be false, right? Mm-hmm. Right, because they're they're what we call self sealing. Because if you say, "Oh, here's this evidence that shows this is wrong," well, oh, okay, where'd you get that? Oh, from that source. Well, that's quote unquote fake news. That's what they want you to believe. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You see, they're in on it. And, and I want to read this comment from uh, from Jerry from Westchester, who says, "I don't trust the mainstream news. They lied about Vietnam, about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq." I find that my friends on Facebook are the most reliable. And so I want to flip to another conspiracy that I heard at the beginning of COVID related to it was a racialized uh, conspiracy theory where African-American people thought that they could not get COVID because of melanin in their skin. And there was this wide theory. And then, of course, once and we we did I did stories on it, trying to dispel this misinformation, then come to find out that community, of course, was hit very hard at the beginning of COVID just because people thought that this was true. How do, how do people create, how does something like this spread? And you heard celebrities saying this, people saying this, and and, and this was a group that you almost, if you disagreed, <laughs> people would be like, what? Like, this is true. And it was, and it turned out to be something that was, was markedly wrong. This is so challenging because sometimes conspiracies are real. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have, you know, the person who writes in and says, I don't trust the mainstream media yes. because guess what? That that caller is correct. The the press was wrong on Vietnam. The press was wrong on weapons of mass destruction. They were quite complicit, mm-hmm. actually, in in creating and, and perpetuating that falsehood. So there are pieces of misinformation that are spread from mainstream media that that we then later learn to be false. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about that conspiracy theory related to COVID in the African-American community, Mm -hmm. you're talking about a community of people that perceive that they have reason to not trust the medical community Mm -hmm. because of actual conspiracies dating back decades. You know, you look at things like um, the Tuskegee studies, Mm -hmm. et cetera, Mm -hmm. related to syphilis and the African-American members who were participants in that study who were not given antibiotics that would have cured the syphilis because it would have stopped the study from being able to to go on. There are reasons in certain communities to have that lack of trust. The question is, how do we try to push through and say, as much as Mm -hmm. your community has a reason Mm -hmm. to have a lack of trust, 
we need you to to listen and trust us now. So let me just say, one of the things that is fascinating is that the messaging on COVID, especially related to vaccines and masking, was actually quite successful in slowing the spread in the African-American yeah, community. Yeah, yeah, and other com- yeah. Right? So kudos to you for covering that mm-hmm, issue, mm-hmm. for saying, look, you might feel that you have a reason to believe this, but you need to trust because the evidence, the empirical evidence is there. People are dying. When people are actually at risk, it's it's when you look at the data on beliefs about the COVID vaccine and beliefs and misinformation about the vaccine, I'm very pleased to report that by and large, the people most at risk of dying of COVID, that is older people, were significantly right. less likely to believe they felt lies. the immediacy they of the felt threat. that yeah yeah exactly right um so we're talking with uh, dana young who's a professor of communication uh, and political science at the university of delaware also the author of wrong how media politics and identity drive our appetite for misinformation you can join us by calling 888-477-9499 you can also email studio2 at org. And I want to use this idea of teams, and I really like that, Dana, um, because I'm a sports fan. I wondered if you'd like that, (laughs) actually. I wondered. (laughs) And I see so many of these dynamics in sports fan communities. Now, it's it's more benign um, because they're just rooting for their teams. But one thing I've noticed, for instance, is that if anyone says anything negative about a Philadelphia Eagles player that seems unjust, that thing gets clipped from wherever it came from. And it circulates very quickly within the fan community online. And then the next day, someone says something, and that gets circulated again. And you get this overwhelming sense that everywhere, all the time, people are saying negative things about your favorite player or team, Mm -hmm. when in reality, they're clipping 15 seconds out of probably three hours of conversation, and most of it has nothing to do with your team. And the positive stuff also doesn't really get circulated very much. Talk about how that dynamic translates into the political and political identity world. So what you're talking about is the intersection of the sort of logics and incentives of our media environment Mm -hmm. and our natural social psychological tendencies. So you are not wrong that those are the very clips that are going viral. And it is because what drives the engine, especially on social media platforms, what drives the engine of virality is... Um, content that is emotional, and in the political realm, it's also moral, moral and emotional content. If you feel that your team has been unfairly attacked, yeah, yeah. or if there's content that reminds you that your team is awesome, okay, then either of those are going to ignite a, a little bit of a rush inside of us, and we'll be more likely to click on depending upon what it is, an angry face or a happy face or to share it or comment on it or to share it and say, can you believe this? Look at these jerks. They're saying these things. It's not It's not right. Um, that is the content that is rewarded by the platforms. And remember, and this is essential, the economics of social media are contingent on their ability to get us to leave information about who we are for them. Mm. Okay, they cannot target us with micro-targeted advertisements if all we do is 
look at our news feed and not click anything. They got to know what team we're on. They need to know what makes us happy, what yeah. makes us mad, what we're going to write about. And every time we do that, we signal to them yep. this is the content that they respond to and that we're going to incentivize. Hmm. Yeah. Our teams used to be sort of, we used to be, and Avi and I were talking about yeah, this before yeah. the show, that we were all on these different teams, um, racial teams, religious teams, all of this. And, and now we seem to have been reconfigured to be on this these two teams politically, liberal or conservative. Um, how did we switch from being sort of able to rally around political ideas versus now rallying around political identities? Yeah, crash course in U.S. history and the history of the parties here because it's really bananas. Yeah. So, you know, you probably have heard a lot of political scientists talking about political polarization, which is obviously part of this. But where political psychologists are looking now is at exactly what you're talking about, which is this phenomenon where it's not just about the political parties becoming more extreme. It's about how we think of ourselves as part of our political teams that's mm -hmm. become more pronounced. And it, the history dates back to the 1970s. So after the civil rights movement, there, were sh there was a radical shift in uh, how the political parties operated in the United States. And that shift was, a, was what we call the racial realignment of the parties, where you have the as African-Americans migrated to cities north and west, um, they sort of changed the politics of what it meant to be the Democratic Party, prioritizing civil rights and calling for civil rights legislation. Then you have the folks in the South who now you have Republican leaders in the South who now missing some of those people who or some of those folks who would have been on their side now because of differences of opinion on civil rights. They, they need to look at how they're going to up their numbers. And so they had what we call the Southern strategy, really, to sort of ignite different identities and unite those identities with what it meant to be a conservative Republican. Mm. And a lot of those identities had to do not only with approval of segregationist policies, but also an active effort to recruit evangelical Christians, white evangelical Christians, and activate this religious group that was really untapped because they never thought of themselves as sort of a political movement. It was it was bigger than a secular, you know, idea. It was really about like the, the afterlife. But now you're talking about activating this group here on earth for, towards a political end. Mm. And so we have what we call the social sorting of our parties over the last four decades, where different kinds of people became affiliated with the two parties. So we have two political parties that now are not just different on policy positions, mm. but, and actually sometimes not even that different, I'll come back to that, but are really different on who's in the parties. Yeah. Well, I actually don't want to skip past what you were just about to talk mm -hmm. about, which is this idea that uh, we have these political mega identities and we've sorted into these teams, even though our individual views might be very mm -hmm. complex mm -hmm. and might cross over yeah. between the two teams. Uh, that's sort of, um, it's, it's hard to understand initially. It is. How do you explain it? Well, in part, I explain it by the fact that you have, as much as these sort of political cultural identities are huge, right? people are not always in the weeds of public policy. Right. And if you look at what a lot of the news media is about, it's usually at about 30,000 feet in the culture war issues. It's not necessarily about details of uh, gun, gun legislation, for example. 
Let's hold that thought. We're going to get back to uh, Dana Young talking about misinformation in politics and how we got to where we are today. Stick with us. You are listening to Studio 2 on WHYY. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt, and we are back here with Dana Gal Young, professor of communications and political science at the University of Delaware. And we're talking about why we believe things that we know are false and how that tendency gets used by politicians and the news media. Dana, you were kind of in the middle of the point there about how, like, we have these political mega identities. They're super mm-hmm. powerful. And yet our personal beliefs sometimes don't quite fall into the, the ascribed camps. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll let you continue on that. People are surprised to learn this, actually, that even on issues as controversial as abortion or gun control, when you look at even individuals who seem to have a pretty salient mega identity in keeping with the right or the left, you might find that their specific position on these issues is actually quite a bit more nuanced. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm looking right now with some colleagues of mine at the University of Delaware at what happens when people are exposed to information that only highlights the extremes of issue positions, mm-hmm. right? When you hear the news media talk about abortion, for example, the the pro-life and pro-choice positions are often framed at the poles, like yep. at the extremes. When you ask people their opinion on these issues, there is a lot. I mean, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuance and caveats and under certain conditions, etc. But you would you would never know that from what these people look like based on their political identities. So that that always gives me hope because it suggests that you should always make a seat at the table and you should always be open to conversation because even if you're looking at someone who looks like the poster child mm-hmm. of someone who will disagree with you on mm-hmm. everything, they might not. Yeah, they might because it's a lot more nuanced there. And so I want to kind of pivot because there's a lot of pieces to the process, right? And so I want to talk solutions a little bit. And we have a question from Henry from Bryn Mawr who says, how can I best teach my parents not to fall victim to misinformation on Facebook and YouTube? You have all this information come in. How do you even sift through it knowing that you do probably have a lot of nuanced opinions on things. Henry, I really sympathize because uh, my parents are are 85 years old and my mom's on Facebook. And it really, it really is challenging. We know from some empirical work that uh, it is older generations who are most susceptible to the information that they see online, the the Mm -hmm. misinformation they see online. In part, it's because these are individuals who grew up at a time when information that came to us through a media outlet had been vetted had there were gatekeepers and producers and editors who decided that it could go on the air and so i think that there's still that assumption that like i see it here therefore it's true part of it is about media literacy and explaining Mm -hmm. that there it's a very different time it's a very different set of realities about how these platforms work um i also 
The one thing that I think is always helpful, and I talk to my students about it, and I try to teach in the classroom, is this concept of intellectual humility, mm-hmm. which is that if we if we say, you know what, I'm never going to remove myself from doubt. I'm always going to be open to the possibility that my view might be incorrect. It's kind of the way that scientists yeah. go about their business, right, where they come up with a theory, but they try to break it, yeah. right? They try to test it and falsify it. If we can talk to our loved ones about that as a way of approaching the world and model it and demonstrate it by being open ourselves and being humble ourselves, mm-hmm. that is often helpful. Um, you mentioned you know, older people are susceptible, of course, but we do have an email from Trisha, who's a college professor, is wondering about a way to inoculate my students against conspiratorial thinking. So it, it does, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, bridge the age groups. Um, You talk in the book, I think some people's inclination here when it comes to misinformation is to do content moderation on Mm -hmm. social media, to say this can't be posted, this can't be shared. You take a slightly different position, I think, which is more that we need transparency about how these social media platforms work as opposed to trying to do the whack-a-mole thing with every bad piece of information. So explain that position a little bit. Part of that is also because if there's anything that a conspiracy theorist is going to become more conspiratorial about. (laughs) Suppressed information, yeah. It's it's information suppression. (laughs) So it's like, you know, how many times have you seen like, like, oh, you know, I had a post and it was removed. Can you explain that? You know, like that is not going to get us where we need to go, especially because if you look at some of the upstream causes, which is why I have the book laid out in terms of the people and the process, if you look upstream at the social psychological factors and the political factors that drive this, you could take down every piece of mis and disinformation and we would still be in quite a pickle, okay? Because there's always going to be more and it's always going to show up in different ways and there's always going to be new wacky things that are probably identity driven, that are in-group and out-group oriented, that are completely false, that people will come up with. So there's a couple things. If you look upstream at educating people about how it is that our brains actually work, what our motivations actually are, how these social identities and these mega identities are problematic and they're harmful and yes you feel that you are on the side of moral righteousness however they think that too yeah. and yeah. if we continue on that path we're getting nowhere number one uh number two thinking about the notion that um if you move downstream a little bit thinking about not just intellectual humility but actually changing how we perform our identities Mm-hmm. Right? Think I this is really challenging by the way. We're fighting it, human nature here. This is uh, tough. Yeah, it's it so is. tough. But I, I'm such an optimist. It makes all of my social scientist friends crazy because <laughs> social scientists are pessimists by design, but I am not. And I do think that people want democracy to succeed. I think that many people are are tired of this bifurcated landscape that we're in. And because we now live in a world where we create the content that contributes to our media environment. We can change what we put out there, what we respond to, whether or not we decide to put more outrage content in the Mm -hmm. mix or model a kind of democratically minded humility that brings the temperature down across the board because when we do, social identity becomes less salient and we're less likely to be driven by identity in our perception of the world. And we only have a couple more minutes, So, but I gotta ask you this, I mean, 2024, it's here, you know, a couple yeah. weeks from now, Iowa caucuses kick off. Yeah. What are you, what, are, what do you see um, as being the biggest challenges coming forward and also the opportunities, and you have about 
a minute and a half or so. Well, there's a, a Washington Post poll that came out today that showed that 25% of the American people think that the January 6th insurrection was an inside job by the FBI, which mm-hmm. now, because I'm an optimist, I also look at the fact that even though 44% of Trump supporters believe that lie, because mm-hmm. that is a lie, 20% of Trump supporters say that that is false. Mm-hmm. That, to me, that's it's, it's in those little spaces where you say, okay, well, so this is an identity. This is a MAGA identity. But even it is not uniform. There is space. And the when you look at some of the lies that, that surround the MAGA movement, you look at the election lie, it's about comprehension, control, and community. Mm-hmm. And the more we start talking to people about why do you need to comprehend things that way? What is it that you're looking to try to control? And reminding people, especially people that believe in lies, that you have a relationship with them as well. You are a loved one. You are a friend. You have shared experiences with them outside of this political mega identity that seems to have captured them. Mm -hmm. That is important. Do not isolate them. Do not mock them. Do not insult them, but embrace them. Yeah. Call them in. Call them in. Interesting. Them in. Interesting. And you, you just you mentioned we're wrapping up this conversation, and so many comments we couldn't get to. We apologize. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a very fruitful conversation. But um, you know, in some ways, technology drove us to this place, and the mm-hmm. fragmenting of the news media drove us yeah. to this place. But also, in some ways, history drove us to this place. There was sort of a historical sorting that happened, mm-hmm. um, and we don't know what history has in store for us over the next you exactly know, 10, right. 20 years. There could be new teams, new identities that emerge out of mm-hmm. some you know, big reorganizing event. Yes. You just never know, right? And there could be new media with new media logics sure. that don't require. Don't exploit these exact exactly, same things. Exactly, that don't require that we be split up and outraged. We can help. We can help. That's Thank right. you so much, Dana, Thank for you. joining us today on Studio Two. Thanks. That, that is, is uh, Dana Young. You, t- you, st- you tell him. <laughs> that is Dana Young, professor of communications at political science at the University of Delaware and author of the new book, Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. That does it. For Studio 2 today and this week. I'm off next week, by the way. Oh, I'm going to miss you, uh, I am going to miss you guys. I'll be back the week after. Um, you can follow Studio 2 on social media platforms. I don't know if we should say that now. Uh, <laughs> download the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray, Bessler, Andreas Copes, Al Banks, engineered today's program. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly. I'm Avi Wolfman. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us. <laughs>